If you would open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Peter, right near the end, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased." And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you are here back for school, and I want to welcome you. Um, And I want to make the case right at the beginning of your school year, all of you who are in school, that the most important thing you do this year is... to give the proper authority to the Bible. That's what you have to do. And I want to start out with a little story, which the people who are part of this church have heard from me before. And as a man gets older, you can just, my dad used to say that you can just number the jokes in the stories. Number seven. (laughs) And so this is number 29. All right. When I was a young man, um, what, probably 22, I think. Uh, All of a sudden, something happened to me. And what happened was that the woman that I love got pregnant. Now, when I say got pregnant, you have some idea that she and I were sinful. And by God's mercy, you heard me pray earlier, thank you, Father, that I did not abort my child. And instead, we got married. Well, you can imagine... If you take two very headstrong, selfish people, one with an earring and the other one with a pierced nose, who worked in a piercing shop in San Francisco, and you put those two people together, and they're both egalitarian feminists, both the man and the woman, and you put them in a place like Madison, Wisconsin, where the Army Research Building was bombed, some of you remember that, it didn't go well. And there were many problems in our marriage from the very beginning. One of the problems was that up until that point, I had been a flirt. And when I say a flirt, it was not, it was repulsive. I liked talking to women. And I liked to show them how sensitive I was. That's why I had long hair and a pierced ear, because it made me kind of like those guys on the, on the books at Barnes & Noble, you know, that have that bosomy woman, <laughs> you know, 
Well, I was that guy. You know, they're always femi-masculine. Have you ever noticed that? Big muscles and long hair. Well, I was that guy, except I didn't have big muscles. <laughs> so we moved to Madison, and we began working, and then I began to go to UW-Madison. Now, if you think Indiana University has problems, you've never been in Madison, Wisconsin. Trust me. Bloomington is a tame backwater compared to Madison. And in Madison, there's a hill. There's the library mall, and then there's a hill going up to the classroom buildings, and that hill is called Bascom Hill. And Bascom Hill is covered with crisscross uh, sidewalks and then grass. And in the spring, every body of every young woman is fully exposed on that grass. Now, this was a conflict for me because I had just gotten married. I had just vowed that I would be faithful to my wife to death. Plus, I now had a baby. And so as I'd walk those paths as a man who had just repented of his sin, of my drugs, of my sexual immorality, of my disgusting life, just as disgusting as yours is now. I realized that if I did not control my desires and my flirting and my eyes, that I would make shipwreck of my marriage and my daughter and my wife. And the fires of hell, you, you, you remember some of you have studied classics, you remember the sirens, you know, in the canyon, the sirens, and I heard the sirens as I'd walk those paths. Everywhere I looked was flesh. And women, if you don't understand, that's, that's sweet. But you men understand. And it got to the point where I could not bear it. I didn't know what to do. And then it hit me that because I grew up in a Christian home, I had learned one of the verses in the book of Psalms, in the longest chapter of Scripture, which is Psalm 119, that there was a verse there, and the verse said what? It said, how can a young man keep his way pure? And I thought to myself, purity, foreign concept, that's what I need. Now, are there any young men here who can finish the question, the answer? If you can, stand up and say it for everybody to hear. How can a young man keep his way pure? Any young men here who know the answer to the question? Okay, wait, 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 wait. Say it again. The whole thing. To your word. Now, you turn around and say it loudly. To your word. Thank you. This is the word. And so, this stupid idea came to me. I thought, you know, what I'll do is I'll memorize scripture as I walk these paths. It's the only thing possible to keep me from being who I was, you know. And so I began to, re to memorize Psalm 1. And as I walked between the flesh pots of Egypt, I had a little 3 by 5 card, and I would memorize this. Blessed is the man 
who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffers. Now, isn't that perfect for Madison, Wisconsin? (laughs) You know, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers. He, He doesn't hang around with the mockers. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the mockers, the scoffers. But, and buts are really important, but his delight is not the flesh pots, not all the bodies I'm walking between, but his delight is in the law of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night, like when you're walking in the flesh pots, (laughs) you know. He shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Not so the wicked. And guess what? When I was memorizing that psalm, I did not want the bodies, I did not want intimacy, I did not want to flirt, I had no desire for the flesh pots of Egypt, none. And so God was merciful to me, causing me to hate my sin and to love my wife and my daughter. And the way I loved them was by being pure. And man, if I were to tell you the opportunities I had to be sexually immoral, and especially in the church, I went to a bad church. But God protected my wife and my daughter by disciplining me. How? How can a young man keep his way pure? He memorizes the word of God. He knows it inside and out. There's no shortcut to godliness. There's no shortcut to godliness. God is pleased to rarely work miracles like this. Most of the time, God uses the means, the tools, the methods of things like prayer, like going to church. What we call them are the means of grace, the, 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 the tools that God uses to work in our hearts what would never be there naturally, okay? God uses the discipline of the elders and of the older women of the church. God uses the joy we have when we come to church Sunday morning and all of a sudden we feel something of the purity that God made us for and our hearts quicken within us. God uses the musicians from IU Music School who give up being priggish and begin to lower themselves to play amplified instruments. And then they begin to write pieces of music that are pretty zealous and sort of drive us. And then our hearts begin to respond because they're all in. And all of a sudden, instead of music being the principal form of idolatry in America today, music serves the glory of God and the health of the people of God. 
always struck me as perverse in this community that one of the best-known music schools in the world, almost everything that's done there serves only the vanity of individual people. But God made music to glorify him. What does a bird do? A bird glorifies God. A bird is not glorifying itself. All right. And so, when you hear me read this section from the book of 2 Peter, where it says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What you know is that Peter is saying to you, I didn't make this up. The word there is the word sophistry. It's the word, the same word that we get the word sophomore from. You have just enough learning to be dangerous. Okay, you're a sophomore. We didn't follow sophistry. We didn't follow human wisdom. And so what did he follow? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, I didn't make this up. This isn't a warm, fuzzy story. This is not an urban legend. I saw this. Now, what is he referring to? Well, he goes on and says, For when he, referring to Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. And that's another way of referring to God. Majestic glory, all right? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. And so what Peter's saying is, Peter, James, and John, the three closest disciples to Jesus, on top of the mountain, and all of a sudden, the glory of Jesus Christ is made clear to them. And then they hear the majestic glory, the Father Almighty say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And can you imagine how Peter's whole life changed from that moment? Jesus is the Son of God, and he's beloved, and God is pleased with him. Your attention would be riveted if you were hanging with a guy like that for three years and you'd hear, heard God say from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so Peter's attention was riveted on Jesus and he followed him through his life. Now, if you were to be told that there was a son of God who came to this earth and took on human flesh, the flesh of man, all right, and I were to say to you, what kind of life did he live? Well, you would say something like, Uh, The queen, the king, the general, the emperor. Something like the best, the CEO of Fortune Top 3. You know, take everything that you know of human majestic glory, right, and put it in a man. That would be how the Son of God would live. But Peter heard about the glory of Jesus Christ from the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then he watched him what? He watched him completely despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He watched him 
as men hid their faces from him. He watched him hated and despised. He watched him live a life of humiliation. He watched him expose the sin of people. Every time he was with them, the sin became clear. He watched them go into religious leaders' houses and have the religious leaders in the house look at a woman washing his feet with their hair and their tears and despise the woman. And he knew this was the beloved son of God and God was well pleased with him. And this woman was washing his feet with her own tears and hair. And then he saw the religious leaders say, he wouldn't let her do that if he knew what kind of a woman she is. And then he heard Jesus say, Simon, when I came in, Tim Bailey, pastor, when I came in your house, you didn't take my coat. You didn't meet me at the door. You did nothing to welcome me. And this woman, from the time I came in your house, she has not stopped welcoming me. And Peter knew who this was because he had heard the voice of the majestic glory say, this is my beloved son. And so Peter watched. His attention was glued to Jesus. He saw him despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And he saw that people hid their faces from him. He saw that he rebuked people's sin, that when he told stories, the stories exposed the secrets of our hearts. He heard the rebukes. He saw him tender with prostitutes and homosexuals and crystal meth users, and long-haul truck drivers, and people that chew tobacco and have black stubs for teeth. And he saw that the rich and the educated and the powerful hated him. He saw them plot to kill Jesus. And then he saw Jesus on the cross, pouring his blood out, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now he holds out to those that he's preaching to, this Peter, to those he's writing to. He says, listen, listen I didn't make this up. <laughs> now, having heard what I just said, when you hear him say, this was not a cleverly devised sophistry, it, it really is humorous. I mean, who in their right minds could ever make up a story like this? That the Son of God takes on human flesh and then lives despised and rejected of men. I always tell people that the reason that I trust the Bible is the Bible is the only book I've ever read that is absolutely dependable to tell you the worst thing it can about its heroes. You know, it particularly focuses on King David's adultery and murder. You know, it takes Robert Caro doing who knows how many volumes before he's done <laughs> on Lyndon Johnson. And he's being fairly faithful. And each volume that comes out, even the liberals, when they review it, even the people that believe in the great society, when they review it, you can see them vomiting as, as their review of the books because Lyndon Johnson was such a horrible man. 
But there's no cult of Lyndon Johnson today. Have you noticed that? You know, there's no Lyndon Johnson memorial being proposed for the mall in D.C. You know? Everybody kind of turns away from Lyndon Johnson. There's no cult. But Jesus, when he died, all of a sudden men who would not even stick around him when he was arrested and crucified, who were nowhere to be found except John, right? All of a sudden, one by one, they begin to die as witnesses to Jesus. The Greek word martyrios is the word that we get martyr from. And you know what a martyr is? It's somebody that dies. And usually it really is used as an indication of somebody that dies for their faith in Jesus. But you know what the word martyr meant in Greek at the time? It just simply meant a witness. You know, these disciples that, like Peter, were with Jesus as everybody hated him and then plotted his murder and then murdered him. These disciples, the majority of them died martyrs' deaths. And what does Peter say? Peter says, look, I'm not giving you a cleverly devised tale. I'm not giving you sophistry. I didn't make this up. But I saw it and I heard it. And so what that means is that as Peter writes, a whole bunch of letters here, as Peter writes, you know that you're getting the straight dope. It's not cut with oregano. All right? It's pure. And he's simply telling you what God has revealed to him. That's what this book is. He says, we ourselves heard the utterance from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word. Did you hear me saying he was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. I am quoting to you the prophet Isaiah, who lived centuries before Jesus, who wrote that in this book, pointing forward to the Son of God who would take on human flesh. He was telling them what kind of life Jesus would have. He was despised and rejected of men. And so Peter says here what? He says, so we have the prophetic word. In other words, we have Isaiah Isaiah saying that he would be despised and rejected of men. Made more sure. How does it made more sure? Well, it's confirmed. He knew what Isaiah said Jesus would be like, the Messiah, and then he sees it. By gum, it's true. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with me. I hid my face from him. We have the prophetic word made more certain to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What's the lamp shining? The prophetic word made more certain. It's the Bible. That's what it is, guys. And you do well to pay attention to it. Listen. If you're in Africa, each country, maybe down to each tribe, has a certain food they eat all the time. Right? Some it's a corn derivative, some rice derivative. 
Here in the Midwest, we eat differently than the East Coast and the West Coast. Out in the West Coast, there's no meat. And that's why they're all sallow-complected and skinny. It's really sad. And in Nebraska, there's nothing but meat. And down in Virginia, where a certain young man here comes from, in this community, Indiana University, is a huge breast hanging from the side. And every person in this community is sucking on it. Now, I know you don't want me to use that as an example, but in the old days, breastfeeding was something that everybody saw all the time, always. And I was just in Bloomington Hospital, and on the elevator, they were exhorting me about breastfeeding. And so I think in the pulpit, we can restore breastfeeding as an example of what life is like, all right, without all of you perverts be having it eroticized. It's milk, right? You drink it, right? Okay, there we are. Think of a breast hanging from the sky. That's Indiana University, and everybody in this community hangs from it. You do when you sell mattresses. I do when I preach. The service stations, the restaurants, the bars, the music scene, the professors, the students, the football, well... All right, basketball. Actually, hot tip, soccer. All right, I'm done. There are no cheerleaders at soccer games. Do you know that I always tell godly people who move to Bloomington that that's the hot tip, and I always tell them there are no cheerleaders at soccer games. Okay. You would do well to pay attention to it. As a light shining in a dark place. <laughs> this is a dark place, people. This is Kinsey. Kinsey was not light. He was not light. We all knew that there is sexual sin and that it's everywhere. He did not tell us that, actually. We already knew it because we already knew our own hearts. But when it's celebrated, when it's a part of our tax dollars at work, when it creates a climate of sexual immorality and perversion, which absolutely engulfs everything in this community, it's a dark place place. It's a dark place. When there's such pride in the human intellect, but not an intellect disciplined by the word of God, not an intellect that has been formed in scripture, an intellect as an intellect, like for instance, all these stupid idols all over town of brains, (laughs) you know, Is absolutely disgustingly absurd. You know, pretty soon there will be kidneys. I think that's what there should be on Kirkwood. 
Livers. <laughs> Yellow. This is a dark place. Knowledge is not dark. Wisdom is not dark. Learning is not dark. But it's a long time ago that learning was submitted to Scripture in this community. And just as music exists to glorify God, so does philosophy, so does literature. You all know that English literature professors will tell you that Pilgrim's Progress is one of the greatest novels that's ever been written. And so literature in the service of God is unbelievably good. How about Bach? It just kills me. I went to St. Matthew's Passion 20 years ago. It was my sort of first thing taking in the music school. and It was in a local Roman Catholic church. And uh, because I've lived in Boulder and Boston and Madison and have spent my life ministering to people tempted by homosexuality, I looked at the, pe- the men singing in the choir, St. Matthew's Passion, and I thought this is like the most beautiful and horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> because I knew the choir was filled with people who were completely given over to homosexual perversion. And yet, listen to the words. It was so beautiful. Here were sinners singing of the mercy of God to them, but they didn't know it. And then I thought, that's what we need to do, is we need to get this community to the point that those who sing Bach know Bach's Savior. You imagine a choir filled with people who were given over to sexual immorality and had repented and come to Jesus and then sang. And then probably about um, four years later, I went to another performance of St. Matthew's Passion. There was a certain conductor who was retiring, and the last two years of his service in the community, he uh, put on first St. Matthew's and then uh, St. John's. And back in about 1996, they put on St. Matthew's at our hall. And there was this godly woman. She had all the leads as a soprano in all the opera. And she stood up and she sang one of the arias from St. Matthew's. And for the first time of my, I'd been to so many performances by then. Tried to go to every one of the recitals of all the students in my church. And for the first time, there was no um, dissonance. There was no off pitch. There was nothing in between the person and the text. Because I knew her heart. I knew it was devoted to Jesus Christ. And here she was singing this glorious aria from St. Matthew's Passion. I died and went to heaven. You would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Pay attention to what? To the Word of God. How do you pay attention to the Word of God? 
You're doing it right now. And I make no apologies for it. God does not intend you to sit home alone with a Bible. God has ordained men who are sinners to preach to you. I make no apology. I grew up sitting under preaching, and it was, it was, it was my life. I grew up having my father preach to me. He was an ordained pastor. It was my life. I grew up having my mother quote scripture to me. It was my life. I make no apology that God uses sinful men and women in your life to call you to pay attention to it. I grew up with a dad who constantly said two things to me, and they were specific to me. One of them was, Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Imagine growing up in a home where that was one of your father's two verses for you. It was so helpful. So helpful. Because I knew that my dad knew me. And then I knew that his God knew me because his God had me paying attention in a dark place to the perversity of my heart. And then I knew I needed the blood of Jesus Christ. And then here's the second verse that he always quoted to me. Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I just loved it because I knew, I know now, I'm a double-minded man. And I'm unstable in all my ways. You would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. And so you come to church Sunday morning particularly when you start being interested in an unbelieving man or woman. Particularly then, because why? You're in a dark place. You need to be a t- pay attention to it. And you come here and guess what? We'll say, why are you dating an unbeliever? And you'll go, bug off. And we'll say, well, <laughs> it was in your Facebook update. I mean, it's quite clear. And you'll say, so what? And we'll say, well, I thought the whole point of Facebook was for you to tell everybody when you go to the bathroom and how. (laughs) Listen, how much time? Do you realize March of this year, the average person on Facebook spent 441 minutes simply on their smartphone on Facebook. That does not include their computers. <laughs> Thank you for that face. That was exactly what I needed. So I'm going to go in for the kill. 380 some on their computer. And I know that that's low for many of you in this church. Are you paying attention to the word of God? And I can tell you, if I go on Facebook and I see what you post, what you update on Facebook, I can tell that you're not paying attention to Scripture. Because everything you say is carefully burnished so that you'll appear to be this, that, and the other thing to the people reading your updates. It's just complete lies. Nobody ever presents themselves to other people truthfully. Nobody does it. You remember the time Al Gore kissed his wife at the Democratic Convention? (laughs) 
It had never been done before. (laughs) Wait, hear me out. By the way, they are divorced. I remember Joe Sobrin saying that from that moment on, there would be hypocrisy everywhere in public between husbands and wives. Because now everybody running for public office would have to show how passionate he was for his wife or her husband. And so Facebook has now, we've sown the wind and now we're reaping the whirlwind. There is no truth in us because Facebook is narcissists looking in the pool, preening himself so that people think better of him than they ought to. You know the difference between my father saying the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and Facebook? (laughs) Here's an idea. You want to post, you want to update this week? That's great. Update this week. Every day, write, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then say, and that includes me. And see, see how many friends you get. What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? One of the tragic things about Facebook is it causes us to take precious things and to prostitute them in the public square. God deals with us in very difficult ways sometimes. Very difficult ways. And instead of sitting under it silently, which is what Lamentation says to do, let him sit under it. What we do is we blather about it on Facebook, and we trivialize the ways of God. And instead of privately praying and crying, we blather about it on Facebook, and we trivialize the ways of God, and we look for our comfort and our healing to people who aren't even friends, really, instead of sitting under it and waiting on God silently. You would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. And then here's how it ends. But know this, first of all. So this is a first thing. Before you go to any classes, before you take any tests, before you read any textbooks, before you listen to your wife, know this, first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Listen, that's scripture. It's not Sartre, it's not Camus, it's not Bailey, it's not Bach. This book is the word of God. It's honest about its heroes, particularly in showing you their sin. It reveals the majestic glory and his son, and it opens the secrets of our hearts. And if You are devoted to this book. You too 
will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth your fruit in its season. You talk about a fruitless season this year. (laughs) All kinds of us were just idiots in our gardens. Well, I've got one on them. I have a, a, I have, I have city water. I can, I, no, no. It just didn't make any difference. Water, don't water, do whatever you want. God said this year ain't going to work, and it didn't work. Except with a watermelon. Go figure. (laughs) It was a great year for watermelon. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf will not wither. And whatever he does will prosper. Whatever she does, it'll prosper. Now listen, remember I told you what a disgusting, degenerate I was? when I was your age, remember that? Now, today, here's my godly mother. She's asleep, but she's in my house. Okay? She's in my house. And this is my wife. And God granted us repentance. Okay? And I think I probably have children here. Here's, would you stand, please? This is that child. That's that precious child that God gave me. And next to her is the next generation. Stand up on your chair as quickly, but don't ever do it again. (laughs) Turn around and look at everybody. And that's just two of them. And we have a whole bunch. One, I can't remember her name. It's something like Fertilizer. I can't. <laughs> he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And you say, well, that's pretty proud of you. I say, oh, come on. If you can hear what I told you today and think that this is pride, you're tone deaf. It's God. It's God. And so, make your choices. Make your choices. I'm not going to nurse maid you. But I guarantee you, I will see what choice you've made. And if you don't want to have me see, go to another church. That's what most people do. And I guarantee you, they will never know the choices that you make. But it's a principle with us here to exhort one another about our choices. Because we know we're weak. And we have a sneaking suspicion you are too. <laughs> okay, Stephen? Welcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bright light shining in this dark place. May the word of God be honored in this place and in our hearts. And we pray, Father, that the day will come soon when we will hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. I pray, Father, for the souls here in this community who have just started. 
that they will not turn to the right or the left, that they will not make a decision against the word of God at any point, but that they will love this Bible, this book, these words, these chapters, these books, and that their love will cause them to produce fruit and to never have their leaves wither and to prosper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.